Right, you ready? Da, 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 da. Oh, I'm gassed. Do you know what? We can just start on that. Oh, God, you've done me dirty there. <laughs> we always find a way to get us singing in somehow. Uh, what what a pleasure it is to be back and ready to go for an absolute belter. Jack, how are you? I mean, we are we recorded this at the same time, so as as our previous episode. So I'm I'm assuming that your cold is only marginally better than it was an hour. Uh, yeah, it's it's probably actually even. I think talking about those three <laughs> movies before has actually loosened up a lot of muck, a lot of lung butter. So <laughs> oh, the second half. When you said that the other day, lung butter, that really is that. It's it's it's, it's very graphic. Yeah, visceral. Really what I'm all about, mate. Me, you know. Visceral imagery. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I'm buzzing to get into our second foray into Middle Earth. Um, and I will, I'll upfront this. Actually, no, I won't. Let's do, we had a, a, a lovely comment on, on Twitter. Um, Bloody better, Dan. <laughs> finally. Uh, Hotspernell underscore CA said, I just rewatched all three of these movies over the weekend as I recovered from surgery. Hope you're feeling better. Um, hot spray now i'm not 100 percent sure what surgery you're recovering from but i hope it's something that yeah. is uh, going to absolutely be a, a breeze of a recovery from uh but hot spray now says amazing how they still hold up so well fantastic films and i will chuck this one to you to start if we're handling these in isolation mm. why is the two towers such a special film in its own right um, because I think it's got some of the finest battle set pieces, if not the finest battle set pieces ever committed to screen. Um, it's been a real look. You look at look at Game of Thrones. Look at how much inspiration it's taken from Lord of the Rings. You know, it's 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 clear to see. Um, I think it's a film that balances some really. It's so funny, some really heavy universal issues in a fantasy setting, right? That you can feel so much from it because you hear fantasy and there is that whole fantasy, orcs and goblins, you know, that kind <laughs> of, that way people turn their nose up at it and they, you know, call you a nerd and a geek and all that type of stuff, despite the fact that things like Lord of the Rings are some of the most popular franchises of all time, right? That shows that a lot of you are watching these in secret if you think it's just for nerds. Um, but the fact it manages to cut through that, cut through the cynicism and just tell you a truly captivating, brilliant story that is so unrelentingly bleak, but punctured with these moments of just hope and joy that are so acutely twinned to the overarching theme of the entire story, the entire saga that can just really floor you, that can really like inspire you and just make you feel hope. For yeah. anything, for any sort of situation, I just think it's. I just think it's. It's a. I think it's a masterpiece. I a think we've both film. said to each other multiple times about how not just the the choreography within the film, but the soundtrack makes you want to literally pick up a sword and just go and like yeah. take down some orcs. 
Yeah, behead a goblin. You know, especially <laughs> that especially that horrible little one that wants horrible to chop one. off the or- the little hobbit's legs. Oh, what about his legs? You don't know those. Horrible. I love that bit though. It's so good. And do you know what, mate? You're so right. Because for all of the people that probably would think of this as just like some absolute sort of swords and sandals tripe. No, I'll never watch that. It took nearly a billion at the box office. The two towers alone. Nearly really? a billion. Like adjusted for inflation, oh, etc. That's probably obscene. Nine hundred and forty nine million dollars it took. Which is just ridiculous. I mean, that's absolutely incredible. And I don't know what year that would have been, but I'd imagine it's kind of 2005, maybe, was it? Um, 2002. 2002. Absolutely incredible. Um, and do you know what? Another thing on this, just before we get right stuck in, I know this film so well. Like, I love this film, and I know it so well because I watched it a number of times when I was younger and watched extended editions and stuff. And what's amazing is that doesn't spoil the film at all. I know every beat that's coming, and there were some lovely bits that I'd sort of forgotten about, but it doesn't spoil any of it. It just makes you more excited for the bits that are coming. Yeah. And you're almost, like, turning to the people that you're watching it with, like, Oh, that thing's about to happen. The thing's about to happen. Oh, and this is about to come and this is about to come. I'm literally ruining it for everyone around me. But it, it, it's so wonderful that you sit there and you know, for example, the some of the big battle scenes or the big fight scenes or some, some of the jokes, some amazing humour in this, like incredible sort of one-liners. Especially Gimli and stuff, right? Uh, so, so beautifully played. Um, so for those that haven't watched it, Quick, I'm sure everyone has, and I'm sure everyone can kind of catch up with this. We won't spoil in 60 seconds because we'll hopelessly brutalise it and ruin it. But the Fellowship of the Ring has been broken apart in at the end of part one. We've seen Frodo and Sam go off on their kind of separate adventure to try and destroy the ring. They're being chased by Gollum. Merry and Pippin have been taken by orcs. The rest of the Fellowship, Gimli, Legolas... Aragorn are going to go and try and save Merry and Pippin. Gandalf's fighting the Balrog and is basically drifting down about 15 miles into the centre of Middle-earth. And as far as we kind of know, he could be gone. So that's kind of where we're at. In terms of the the kind of the, the starting talking point, I think you've sort of hit the nail on the head. This film is sort of remarkably bleak and remarkably... Really dark considering that it is a sort of fantasy film isn't it like just the whole thing is basically like look okay so the orcs and are pretty much taking over um everybody is divided nobody really has any hope the riders of rohan have been kind of banned from their own lands the king is Got some spell over him by what's he called? Grey Worm. Grima Worm Tongue. Grima Worm Tongue. Despicable, despicable little grub, isn't he? Horrible. Um, everything's in disarray. Um, the Fellowship. Did you remember are, that? Huh? As far as you remembered it, like, did, did you remember it being sort of getting dark in the sort of metaphorical sense so quickly? No. So didn't, I, 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 like you said there, I just. I hadn't really crossed my mind until this rewatch. I was like, God, people, 
all hope was gone like real fast. Yeah. The and, and the, the the Urukai are just kind of everywhere. God, I'm such a neek. But the 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 orcs are everywhere very quickly. Suddenly they're like, okay, well everything's screwed. We're done for. Yeah, and you got Saruman like destroying the forest. He's sort of openly saying, well, the whole forest is going to burn. Shadow will encapsulate the whole land. And you, at this point, you are like, how is anyone going to fight back against this? Like, this is mad. And uh, the, alongside this as well, because, you know, it's often Frodo's mood that paints the picture of the film. Frodo's getting completely lost now. You know, he's, he's turning on Sam at every turn. You've got. Gollum, Smeagol, who's in the middle of this now. Who I'll tell you one of the main things I kind of, I guess I didn't really think about until this latest rewatching is that Smeagol's just not in the first one. Because he's, no. when you talk about Lord of the Rings, everyone says, my precious, and does all that. And they know that that's, he's the central figure of the whole thing. Gollum, Andy Serkis is like portrayal of Gollum. It's unbelievable. It's so iconic. So uh, got to be one of the most iconic movie characters and performances of all time surely yeah like, and I, the the imagery of it is so powerful as well you know that look you know what he looks like yeah you can't sort of shake that image and the fact that he's barely in the first one than other than a few shadows is is actually quite mad it is it's yeah. it's quite mad um but yeah, having him in this second one and seeing him, him and what I guess is his alter ego, which is, is it Sauron? Is that, is that what we're led to believe? Is it the ring? Is it Sauron who is the other figure inside Gollum's head? Oh, that's a good question. That is a good question because he kind of, you see, yeah, maybe it is. You know, or, or maybe it's just kind of like this split version of, of him that is just desperate to cling on to the rings. Kind of like what Bilbo had, right? Yeah. Like when Bilbo does that <laughs> thing and just like jumps at the camera, it looks really similar. It's horrible. I hate that, but... Just so grubby. But that, um, he was, Andy Serkis was just a, a, a voice actor wasn't he he was sort of predominantly a, a voice actor and the movement in this because he's got all the the motion capture stuff the movement in this is just it's absolutely unbelievable so so uh i mean what's amazing about it is that the cgi i mean we'll come to this later on the cgi is obviously not anywhere near today's kind of cgi but the voice is so good that it doesn't bother you so much you know, you're just sort of in it. it the, the kind of the wonderful realness of his acting and his portrayal of the two is just magnificent. I can't remember if he won an Oscar for it. I feel like maybe he was nominated for for an Oscar. Maybe, yeah, for something or other. But in terms of like going back to the the point you made about it being bleak, I think I'd, I won't steal this point. I think it's very much one that you mentioned to me, like that we'd both forgotten how much of the film is literally shot in darkness. Yeah. I would say maybe 75% of the film is in the dark. Yeah, probably, right? Helm's Deep, you think everything of Frodo and Sam is pretty much either in mist or in darkness. Yeah. Everything in the forest is dark. 
even though the the forest is kind of like that natural it's supposed to i mean we can come back to this but the the, the idea of nature being destroyed and then you only really have light at the the beginning and the end and you really have that release at the end when gandalf rocks up but but that's that's it isn't it it's intrinsically tied to him it's to give you the it's to give the full impact of gandalf's rebirth gandalf the white coming back um why can i ask a quick question why is he being reborn does, does he die in a certain sense, I think I'm. I'm not really a hundred percent. I need to sort of know, you know, understand a bit more about the law. I'm sure there'd be somebody listening to this, watching this, screaming at us right now, being you like, idiots. "It's obvious, you idiots!" But what I know is that, like, like I was saying before, that like Gandalf, Sauron, Saruman are in a human form, but they're not humans. They're you know these kind of wizard figures are more like angels. They're like guardian angels put upon the earth by the divine spirits. Um, and so I think, it, I, th- I just think the, the point they were trying to make is that Gandalf's work was not, was not yet done, but it's almost like a Pokemon evolution, right? I think he just kind of, he was now enlightened. He saw this situation in a different way. And hence, I guess, metaphorically he becomes Gandalf, the white, the enlightened one. Um, the bringer of light. What is it? He says, "Look to look to the west on my." Coming. Yeah, you know, on the, on the fifth day, on the fourth day, on the fifth day, look to my coming. So good. But the, but this but the, the thing is, with the film being this unrelentingly bleak, it really does. Like when you do get these little moments, it's such a punch. It's such a punch when Frodo has Sam down on the floor and he's holding the sword to his throat, and he just says. Mr. Frodo, it's me. You're Sam. You're Sam. Yeah, and you're like, like, it totally gets you, right? It totally is like a gut punch. And it's it's that moment of Sam doesn't get angry. Sam doesn't fight back at Frodo. What he does is he speaks to his heart. He speaks to the, the, the commonality that they have. It's like, it's me. Like, come on, don't let the ring, don't let that thing corrupt you. Don't let it ruin you and we were look we we can i, I i'm not going to jump ahead am i can we talk about the think? card that you sent me earlier oh yeah big time so ben ben sent me this ben sent me this thing saying bloody love sam and it was like what is it like a lord of the rings top trump, trump. yeah yeah lord of the rings top trump and it said his ring resistance was a three <laughs> and i was like I started going off on one, being like, no, bollocks. It should be 10 out of 10. And Ben was like, Jack, three is the highest metric on the ring resistance <laughs> on this thing. I was like, yep, I have been annoyed by a 20-year-old a trading card. card game. <laughs> but I just think the point that really comes through with this film in particular, I think anyway, is that Sam's dedication is to the quest and to Frodo and to seeing Frodo be the best Frodo that he can be. You know, when he's saying to him, there's going to be talking about this in a thousand years to come, they'll be telling the great story of Frodo, the greatest hobbit who ever lived. And then obviously Frodo goes on to say, "Eh, well, and don't forget Sam the Brave, because Frodo wouldn't have got, oh God, it's choking me up, man, even just talking about it. 
Frodo wouldn't have got half, you know, half as far as he did without Sam. But you see that Sam, he he doesn't, they, they are constantly surrounded by people who want to take the ring. You know, half of this film is the Hobbit's been taken off course by the the lads from Gondor, isn't it? Um, yeah. Boromir's brother, Faramir. Faramir taking him because he kind of wants the ring, but he's also like, let's take this back to Gondor and we'll see what they'll do with this ring. Again, seduced by the power of the ring. Sam isn't at any point, you know? We've had Galadriel who withstands the test, but still has been tempted. Even Gandalf, Gandalf, this pure, wonderful figure who is one of the main heroes of this, cannot bear to the thought of having the ring in his hands because he's so terrified by its corrupting power, by his tempt. He's tempted by the ring. He is. That's why he doesn't want it anywhere near him. Sam couldn't care less. All he cares about is his best mate and getting him to the end. And that's, he's, he's so pure a heart and it's so kind of, he embodies the heart of the film, of the tale of the film that, you know, and I, I know some of this is, I, I've, the thing is I can't, I can't be completely naive to this. Some of this is wrapped up in kind of Tolkien's ideas of normal people, that people shouldn't have ideas above their station and all that type of thing. I get that. For anybody, this is the internet. I know what it's like. I know people are going to be watching this being like, look at these people. They don't consider the full context of Tolkien backing up this caste system and all this type of thing. Look, I get that. But when you're losing yourself to a movie, right, and that's what it is. That's what we're losing ourselves to, an, an adaptation of Tolkien's work, yes, but still a movie, a totally different experience. And the message I take from this is not one of, oh, certain people from, you know, normal everyday people from the home counties should know their place and tend to the land and not worry themselves with aspiration and ideas of bigger things. What I take this is, is that love and brotherhood and friendship trumps and should trump all of this other bullshit that we let pollute our lives, these notions of power and fame and control, all of these things that people lose their lives to that they concern themselves with, when really ultimately it's about being a good person and looking out for the people who are your nearest and dearest, who are close to you. And that's that's kind of where Sam's at. That's That's... That's what he embodies. And it shows you, it's that kind of thing of like, if you focus on that, if you focus on the smallest things, the good things, like we were speaking about with one life before, you know, you do what you can do in your, within your power, within your control to make the world a better place. And the ripple effect of that can sometimes be enormous. You know, you get that. Um, you also get another great example of this when it's fairly early on, I think, but they sort of, Sam says it's the ring isn't it it's getting heavier and then Frodo sort of clutches onto the ring sort of holds onto the ring and he says what food have we got left and then <laughs> Sam gets the bread out and he's like oh look more Lembus bread and then he said I don't usually do foreign food but this elfish stuff is it's not half bad and then you see Frodo just completely melt he's like how is how are you not getting down about this how are you not getting completely flattened by this whole experience and you sort of have that lovely brotherhood that he's going well i'm a bit down but i'm keeping you going 
you yeah. know, I'm here to keep you going. So I've got to keep keep spirits up. Um, and he sort of says that nothing ever dampens your spirits, does it, Sam? It's it's such a lovely line. And then we just like that rain cloud, mate. You know, it's yeah. just it's a nice little like I love yeah. that little exchange. Like, mate, it made me laugh that bit actually. Out well, and, made me lol. And it's that that thing, isn't it? Sam, I think with Sam, Sam's thing is, I think Sam's super deep, whilst yeah. at the same time being a really simple creature. Like he just wants to go home. Well, this is what I was saying last week. It's like, it's, he's like Occam's razor. He's the guy that's like, look, this is the point is that I'm going to help Frodo to get that ring to Mount Doom, chuck it in there, and then we can go home again. And that's yeah. what I'm focusing on. And that's what okay. I care about. Yeah. And you do often come across those people in life, don't you? Yeah. So sort of come across those people that just go like, we've got a task ahead of us and we can sit here and faff around and talk about how dreadful it is or how brilliant it is or whatever or we could just do it you know and it's yeah. so good to have those people around you that that are the kind of like let's just let's just do it that like, we'll, we'll crack Get it, on with we'll it. Do it yeah um we were speaking a little bit earlier on about the kind of the idea of the film being bleak and the kind of evilness or the, the just sheer volume of evil that is present mm. within the, the film. And I thought you said something amazing while we were kind of prepping for this. You said, I think it was evil likes nothing more than a prosperous peacetime. Mm. Um, I wondered if you could delve into that a little bit, because I thought that was such a great point. And you really see that in the shadows kind of in this film, whilst everyone else is faffing around, pissing each other off and arguing over everything you see in the shadows the stuff that you really need to worry about is kicking off. Well, this is it, isn't it? Because setting in the first one that for at least a couple of thousands of years now, evil, the forces of like Mordor have just been at bay. They've just been quietly making their plans, essentially. Whilst, as we say, we, we see in this film, right, Gondor and Rohan don't get along anymore. Rohan saying now, Gondor, where was Gondor at this? They've they've forsaken us, and the elves and men have kind of you know fallen apart from one another. You've got the elves that all want to like piss off to the kind of to the other world now, don't they? They want to get on the boat and go and live forever and leave Middle Earth behind and leave everyone there just to die. They don't want to stand shoulder to shoulder. They don't see anything worth fighting for, worth dying for. It, 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 and it just it makes me ponder kind of is this a comment on our nature is this a comment on not like the hubris but just l like we say because we do see this in these in these kind of times of prosperity times of peace that we start to look for faults with one another we start to look for faults and errors with ourselves um why has I mean, he got more than me yeah. And I mean, like, if we look, I mean, we can, we can, I don't want to go, I don't want to go too deep into this because it's, I think this is a totally different podcast for, you know, people. I mean, I, I say myself, somebody who knows much more about this type of thing, but I'd say, look, we, we've all kind of said, look, there was a time after the, after the second world war, and this is nothing to do with Tolkien, right? In Lord of the Rings. Um, but just as a real world kind of example of this, like after Second World War, you know, 
I think for the most part, people have tried to come back from this. They've tried to build bridges. They've tried to live in more harmony. I know some people would point to like Vietnam, for example, and things like that as an example of this not being fully the case. Um, but I think for the most part, there was a lot of peace right around the world and people built and things got better. And we sort of started to, in maybe like the nineties and the early noughties feel in, let's say in this country and across Europe in isolation, let's say that things suddenly felt like it's pretty much a liberal democracy in every country across Europe, that there are common shared values bearing in mind 50 years ago, Europe was exterminating one another, you know, like they were absolutely just destroying one another. And they got into a point where they're like, we have shared values. We have more that binds us and breaks us apart. Let's build a better future for our children. And it felt like we were getting there. And then suddenly things like Brexit start to happen. Things like, Trump start to happen, things like an increasing amount of far-right authoritarian governments and figureheads start to pop up all over Europe. And you start to see the cycle continues that whilst we've all been sat there thinking, oh, we're all in this place now and we're all going to argue about who should get a free bus pass and not, <laughs> and who, you know, are we going to have identity cards and blah, 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 that actually kind of other shit has been going on. Under, there's been a lot of people who have either felt not represented or unheard or feel like they don't like this status quo. They don't like the way that this world has been shaped. And now that everybody who was on the same page is arguing about all these other different things and there's no longer a sense of unity amongst, shall we say, the, 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 the liberal-minded kind of people that want things to go well, that the people who don't like that, first and foremost, are united in that and you have a united opposition to the status quo. And... You know, we've been saying before, like Tolkien didn't like allegory or anything like that, but this isn't about what Tolkien wanted us to take from this film or this story. This is what I've taken from this story. Um, and I, I do see, obviously this was written before all of these things go wrong, but I, I think it very much is a comment on the fact, like like you said at the start, that evil loves nothing more than like a prosperous peacetime because I don't want to break this into like, well, let's say for the purposes of the film, good will start to break apart because it will always attack one another. It will look at ways it needs to improve itself and that leads to disagreements and that, you know, leads to that less than united front. Maybe when there's not that rallying opposition for them to kind of get to club together against. And obviously, as this film goes on, we start to see the, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? The galvanizing effect of having a proper opposition can, yeah, can bring. United by a common enemy. I, I feel like I've, I've said a lot of waffle there and I've said a lot of things that's probably no, piss off a lot of people as well. No, but, I don't think so. Know. I think that was, that, I think that's kind of, 
what I found fascinating with this film is that obviously, I mean, history is cyclical, right? You sort of see everything is a very, it's a quote I love from the film Closer. Clive Owen says, everything is a version of something else. And it is so true. You sort of think you're watching this film and you see the, the parallels between the things in this film that you can apply to the modern day are unbelievable. And yet I imagine 22 years ago, people were making comparisons with this film to the modern day in 2002 and saying, gosh, what a reflection of this is. I think the thing that you can take from it even further than that is that Tolkien is... Tolkien's written this in the wake of World War One, yeah, and all of those themes that he is kind of like reflected on are playing out again and again and again every kind of like thirty, forty years or twenty years. There's a, a similar kind of cycle, and there is there is something in that idea that whilst everyone hasn't got a common enemy, I don't know what it is in all of us that we eventually we just sort of decide to. I don't want to diminish it and call it something sort of flippant, but we sort of have this weird addiction to the drama. You know, well, we we almost, almost kind of can't help ourselves, but like get involved in skirmishes because there's not enough going on. Well, look, look, look you know, our common interest, our common love of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. Let's look at that at the moment. Sitting fourth, we've had a we've had a you know a pretty miserable time the past few years. Now we're suddenly sitting pretty. We got a manager that shares the values of the club, who you know all these values that we've always spoken about playing football with a flourish, all that type of thing to dare us to do. It's entirely what this bloke is. It's entirely his football DNA. We've always we've been asking for years for these kind of young attacking players like we used to sign. Why don't we sign players like Aaron Lennon and Tom Huddlestone and all that type of thing anymore? Well, that's what we are doing now. We've gone back to that model of buying young, talented players, stars of tomorrow, who are all bought into the same objective of achieving success, playing football the right way. And, oh, no, people are still getting really angry about it. Even though we're sitting in fourth, looks like we're going to finish in the Champions League. No, apparently now, Kulisevsky's crap. And Brennan Johnson's crap. And actually, maybe Ange's tactics aren't right. And maybe, you know, maybe our pressing game isn't good enough. And why didn't we win this game? And why are we conceding late equalizers? We're terrible. We're this. We're all lads. We're sitting in fourth in the league at the moment. And this is the first year of this project. And we've got some of the most exciting, brilliant young players in the league, if not in Europe. Like, it's all right. It's all right to just sit what and watch that, and enjoy though? it. What is that? Like, because it, it isn't. I feel like that is not a. I feel like that is not an environmental thing. I feel like that. Well, is so, like some, some people will try and have you believe they will gaslight you into thinking because you don't think that way. You're a loser. Like they think that I'm wired in this way. I'm wired like a winner, and I want the best. And I'm sorry, I don't want to settle for second best. That's kind of what a lot of that stuff is wrapped up in. And I don't know if this is, you know, some, I don't know, I'm not, I can't do cod psychology on this, but there's just a projection of a, you know, an anxiety of failure or something like that. 
but also like that that I think you sort of go survival of the fittest thing, or at least that's a projection of that idea that you you like anything outside of first is is last, and so in terms of the film, the idea is okay, right? We got rid of the evil, we got rid of this kind of evil in the world. Now I've got to be top of the pile. Yeah. It's not enough to have survived. Yeah. I now need to be on top of everyone. Well, you know? the elves look down their nose at us, but then if it's not the elves looking down their nose at us, now they've pissed off back to the forests. It's actually that lot in Gondor because they've got higher walls than us and, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. It's, um, yeah. I, I do think this is this is part of why the film is so phenomenally good and I th- I will go out on a limb and say it's the best of the three for me it's, it's it's far and away like it wins it so easily for me um, probably yeah not just because of Helm's Deep which I think is the greatest battle scene of any film ever um and I'll st- I will happily take on all comers there come at me with your battle scenes that you think are better than that but I think it's literally the the greatest of all time but I think because the film does this incredible thing where it takes on the fantastical and then roots everything in reality and i sort of mentioned this to a friend the other day but it's the idea that basic rules such as mortality exist and then a got a little bit of tinsel on they're played around with you know it's this idea that look at the orcs they're kind of birthed without really ever being conceived you know so they're grown, they're made, but they can be destroyed as well. Look at the elves. They kind of, they have this everlasting life if they want it, but they can be killed. So there's still value. There's still real life value to everything. And I'm going to steal this point off Christina and I will reference her because <laughs> this is very much her, her shout, but I hadn't really factored this in. I, w- I was just enjoying how immersed within the film that I was and how much kind of, I was just bought into Middle Earth, but she sort of referenced, she was said the costumes do that to you as well, because you look at the elves and you're like, yeah, that's an elf. And you don't ever go, how ridiculous, what on earth they were, you know, that's an elf. And you look at Gandalf and you go, oh, he's a wizard. You don't ever even, nothing takes you out of it for a second. This world that has been built, and Peter Jackson's done an unbelievable job. I mean, it was seven years of his life, but he's done an unbelievable job to take you into it. The elf is, I mean, I think um, Liv Tyler said that her makeup was three hours every morning. And the elf elf ears that she wore were made of... um, made of a a perishable substance. So a new pair of them had to be made every day. And if they got too hot, they would just fall apart. But they were so committed to getting it right that that was the material they were going to use. And the the prosthetics people made them every single day. I don't know if you've seen John Reese davis talking about the allergic reaction that he had to the prosthetics that he had to wear. No. He had an allergic reaction to the... It's Gimli, right? John Reese davis Well... Gimli or come on hit me with the trivia who else does he play oh I don't know mate Treebeard 
tree beard. Yeah. How incredible that. is that, by the way? Yeah. Ghibli and tree beard. Like, absolutely phenomenal. Anyway, Some so he, of these trees <laughs> were my friends. Quickly. Um, he has this... Uh, he has this allergic reaction. So they basically had about an hour to film with him each time. Because after that, the, for the rest of the day, his face was turning blotchier and blotchier Bloody and hell. more red. And it got to the point where he had no peripheral vision for the fight scenes. Horrific. So that's why in the Battle of Helm's Deep, you see sort of turn and swing this axe at things because he can't actually see where he's going with it because his face is exploding. It's a bit like, um, you know, in the in the film Hitch where Will Smith yeah. goes, come on, it is not that serious. Ah! And then just sort of screams when he sees his face. So he's having an allergic reaction to 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 that. At the same time, you've got, the, the 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 basic little things like the hair and makeup absolutely amazing the armory the swords that they use the 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 bows and arrows everything the meticulous detail is exquisite in this and i think it is i think it's standout because of the level of depth they have to go into in this film so that then takes me on to a thing that i have been buzzing to talk about all week since since you said that we were going to do two towers so the reality and that the idea of it being rooted in the real world i only found out this week kind of why i felt that so so viscerally with this film edoras which is essentially sort of kingdom of rohan i had no idea they actually made it from scratch in the middle of this area of New Zealand with the mountain scape in the backdrop. Yeah. And they built the entire kingdom of Edoras. Guess how long it took them to make Edoras? I don't know. How long? Eight months. Sick. They built the entire thing and then they shot there for eight days. Oh, man. Imagine that, like the level of creativity and craft and energy and the sheer human power to make something like that. Then on top of that- Does it still exist? Can you go there? No, they had to remove the whole thing. What? Get rid of the whole thing straight away. Gone. Helm's Deep, seven months to create Helm's Deep and they created it. So- they did the entire world building. And that is why, because Peter Jackson refused. He said, like, we're going to do this. That is why they wanted the money up front. You know, we were talking when we were doing Fellowship of the Ring. They were saying, like, right, we're going to do all three films. And we're one, we want one studio. And we're going to do it and do the whole thing. And we need the cash now. They did all of it. They shot all of it at the same time. I believe that actually f- they, they finished two towers before they finished Fellowship of the Ring. Really? But they did four months of night shoots for the Battle of Helm's Deep, which is just unbelievable. That's some hard going, man. That must have been seriously. But that shows you how dedicated everyone was to getting this film made, right? Yeah. And I mean, that is that in itself, We've all had days at work where we're like, God, this is a bit heavy going. Imagine that when you're trying to orchestrate hundreds of people, hundreds of people for like 
months on end when all you're seeing is nighttime. You know, your body clock's off. You can't sort of get yourself up for it. It's freezing. It's raining all the time. They were saying that everyone was kind of like getting ill and getting colds because they were just constantly getting soaking wet and just outside every night in the cold, kind of just going through the motions. And this leads me on, sorry, I've kind of a bit of a role here. This kind of leads me on to something called the beer test, which has got multiple names. But I don't know, have you come across this before? No. And it's essentially the idea that when you are going to have a very, very tough shoot or a very, very tough week of work, you need to know that at the end of a horrendously long day, that you can still have a beer with the people next to you. No, that's quite good. That and and that kind of like really, really played a huge part in terms of the casting for the film because they obviously had to cast all three at once. There was no room for error. They had to get it right. Like they had to cast people that were going to be amazing, but also people that were going to really, really get get on. And I think there was like an incredible leadership in in Peter Jackson's casting because he got it so right. Yeah. You know, he like all of them were clearly so, so tight and really good friends. I, I mean, I've I've listened back to um, the, they did the, the the extended edition. They did the, the cast commentary. Yeah. So I listened back to the cast commentary. It's hilarious, mate. It's really? It's so funny. They're just so good. They all get on so well. And it's split into each scene. It has the people in that scene with the people who are also in the scene with them and they chat about the scene together. So they'll have a laugh with each other about the things that they were doing at the time. And Andy Serkis is there with, with Elijah Wood and, and Sean Austin. Um, and they're talking about their experience. Then it'll flip over to Mary and Pippin talking about their experience. Then it'll flip over to Liv Tyler. And it's just, I mean, it's absolutely incredible, but I just think those, this this is really interesting in that they were basically asking people when they cast them, they asked them to like write up sticks and move to New Zealand, you know? So you had to be a certain character type anyway to go, mm. I'll just leave everything and go to New Zealand for three years, potentially two years, you know? Um, and I think that that thread running from the very top of it, right the way through to the to the little things like i was saying before in terms of hair makeup costume armorers night shoots they uh, peter jackson actually says that he thinks there's, there's something sort of deep rooted in the people of new zealand in that because so many of the the kind of extras or the supporting cast were locals because they were that they had to get hundreds of people he said he, he thinks like is it with his, his experience of shooting there that there is something deep-rooted in people from New Zealand that because they're an island because they're out there on their own they're like there is a greater cultural will to just jump in and look after each other and he said that really really played a part in the Helms Deep stuff because it was so long four months long that everyone just on days when it was tough, everyone was like, come on, we'll, we'll get through it. We'll do it. Don't worry. It'll be okay. Um, and I think that really comes across in the film. That really, really comes across in the film. And I don't think really you could, you can't fake that, you know. 
to do if you think about like four months of rainy nights at some point you just go i can't i've got i'm just gonna phone it in today you know yeah. there's not a single bit of the helms deep battle that is phoned in it's all excellent can i ask you mate helms deep aside what's your favorite part of this film what's your favorite scene or maybe not scene but favorite section or that is such a good question Wait, buy me a minute to think. What's yours? It's the March of the Ents all the way, mate. Uh, I absolutely. Okay. Uh, that okay. bit, honestly, mate, that bit when, you know, when the Ents are like, we've made our decision. No, nah, we're not getting involved in this. We don't need to concern ourselves with these wars of men and orcs. No, nah, not for us. And then when they walk through and he suddenly sees, hang on, Sauron, Saruman, Sauron, they're not going to stop, are they? They're going to carry on. And he does this <laughs> to get all the other Ents coming. And you see yeah. him like running towards the tower, the March of the Ents, the last, what is it? The last March of the Ents, he says. And then and he's like, come on, come on. They pull, they pull like the, the out. Spit all flying out everywhere. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> oh. Go on, you big tree bastard. What Go on. It, what is it about the Ents that is... I don't know what they're weirdly emotive. I know. They? Like, they, I don't know what it is about. It. I think maybe there is nature. Yeah, the sort of the, the kind of deep rooted like it's, it's a the environmentalist in you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah you are like, why are you burning the trees down for? What did they do, mate? How much do you love that one fella? Right, that one ent that gets set on fire, and then when they break the yeah, when they break the river, they break the dam. You see him run in in the bottom corner, just stick his head in the water. Yeah, I've amazing, always loved him. I've always loved him. Uh, oh, that's what I mean. That is what I mean. You know, what I'm saying at the top that you know it's coming, and yeah. you still look out for it. And yeah, like, the no, little no, no, fella. No, no. There he is. He's coming in in the corner just any second. That yeah, there he is. <laughs> so brilliant it's, it's so brilliant it's because moments before that you've seen him get set on fire and you're like no yeah and you think that could be the end of it like that is it's, it's so carefully constructed that part of the film I you can't it. help but kind of it feels a bit brave heart doesn't it yeah it, sort of seeing Tree Beard just do his big kind of war cry and then yeah. them going almost like slow motion to tear it apart. And, it's, and, it's, and mate, imagine how scary that would be a load of massive oak trees coming to like bash you up, like <laughs> that many as well. Can we use this opportunity also to talk a little bit about Christopher Lee getting shafted here? Yeah, what? So you, because I'm going to say this, right? Because last week you were talking about. Saruman's death and I was kind of like yeah 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 and then suddenly after we stopped recording when I was listening back to it I was like am I an idiot but I don't remember Saruman dying at all I suddenly remember like fellowship happening Saruman being a massive part of that and then the second one him basically having a couple of little bits and then in the third one they're like yeah and Saruman went by yeah unbelievable like, it's kind of weird for such a central figure of the film. So the, the I don't know if I said this last week, but basically the toss-up was that they didn't want to end the second film with Saruman's death. Technically, it should have been in the third film. So they didn't do it for the second film. And when he starts cutting, he's like, 
is this going to be weird if we then just start a film? If you have never seen the first two films, is this going to be weird if suddenly you start a film with someone dying and then everyone's like, who is that guy and why has he just been stabbed? And so the, the scenes exist. And I would say shut up and go and watch the other two first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the scenes exist and it's phenomenal because it's Green and Wormtongue that ends up doing him. And it's well worth watching, but it, 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 he is cut out of pretty much everything. And he was so good in can, the first one. Can I ask you, mate, right? Look, obviously, Peter Jackson deserves a lot of love and respect for the passion and the hard work that's been put into these films. So this feels, you know, almost pathetic to do this, but maybe the one misstep he made in, oh, with I, this. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. And also, so I don't know if I said this last week as well, but the biggest criticism at the time or the biggest concern at the time is that people wouldn't have the patience with the films and that people wouldn't give the attention to the films because of the running time and it was going to mm. put people off and they do run long anyway. You know, they do run relatively long. It, it um, feels like one of these things that the studios always say this shit and I'm like, but then why is it that like all the greatest films of all time, Godfather, you know, Lord of the Rings, Avatar, all these type of, when I'm saying like in terms of success, they're always very long at Shawshank Redemption. Like, why do why why do like audiences still seem to get discredited with this idea that they all got short attention spans and they all just want to watch films like Argyle? I was talking about you know, which is fine in in, in times, but a lot of the time people do want to watch something a bit deeper, something with a bit more meaning, something that they can lose themselves to. Particularly after the first one, because <clears throat> if you watch the first one, you you're in. Yeah, you know, you. Give it a go. You know, you'll say, right, okay, well, I'm, I'm in. And also, for me, it is a, this is a, this is a ball drop here because I thought Sarah Mann, I thought Christopher Lee's commitment to it was incredible. And he's mm. such a big part of the first film. It's sort of strange that it's just like, he's just sort of played off. And they sort of say, don't they? Is it, I don't know, is it the end of the second one or the beginning of the third one? They're sort of like, oh, yeah, he's up in his tower, but he's not going to come down. Yeah, it's the third <laughs> one. That's, that's, that's what they're like. Yeah, it's all right. Child. He's scared but, of the trees. Don't yeah, worry. Yeah, no, he, won't, he can't come down. He's, he's, he's grounded. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's properly weird. Ba 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 Saruman's amassing this army and when it's whatever his name is what's his worm tongue when he's like you know this is going to take such a massive army for for anybody to be able to take Helm's Deep and Saruman's like yeah will it come and have a look yeah, and he walks him out onto the balcony like fucking Nuremberg rally and it, yeah. it's just there and you're like oh man and, and when they so Helm's Deep is obviously like the fortress the fact that they're all lined up on the top of it, just watching this sea of enemy orcs sort of walking towards you, is proper claustrophobic, isn't it? You're like, yeah, 
Oh my god! They're they're back little... there against the mountain, half you yeah. know. And you're seeing little kids with that. They sort of that's quite. This is a good sword. That that scene always gets me as yeah. well. He sees a sees a little kid standing there and sort of saying, "I am blah blah blah, son of blah blah blah." And it's like you're a child, you know. Paragon is thinking you are so dead, mate. Yeah, <laughs> you are going to get absolutely. Yeah, but dumb. nice sword. Yeah, I hope hope you use it. Probably yeah. won't. Maybe also, I'll retrieve it from your corpse. <laughs> how how good is it that they make it that old guy with the, the bow and arrow that kicks off the wall? Yeah. <laughs> nice. You sort of are like, because you're like, oh, you idiot. What have you done? It's like as if they were going to stop and just not fight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yet you're still properly judging him. What a clown. Can I just say one of my other like little sneaky bits that does kind of wind me up a little bit with this film? Always sort of did, just a little bit. Is it when um, Gimli and Aragon, when they want to jump onto the drawbridge, the main drawbridge to attack their kind Toss of Urukai? <laughs> well, they're the tossing bit, but how there's just suddenly like, oh, there's just a little door they can go out of. Oh, no, <laughs> yeah, nobody thought convenient. to attack that. Do you know what I mean? Just this, this random little wooden door that would just lead you straight into the keep. Oh, no, that's Lindley. that's completely fine. Yeah. You know? Yeah, like, exactly. But whatever, that's me just being a bit of a knob, you know. Well, I know, there's also like... another thing. I sort of it jumped out at me this time when they when like all the the Rohan big boys rock up. There's like a million of them. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas when you first see them, there's maybe forty, fifty. Yeah, top know? side. Yeah, <laughs> then... yeah. I, I was thinking that in that later bit, <laughs> like you say, yeah, at least I, that's oh, a, man, a, a million is a conservative estimate as well. I, 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 oh God, I'm gonna sneak out again. I just started Googling the life out of this. I was like, I was just not having it. <laughs> I was literally, I was just like, I'm not having it. What, like, why there's so many more of them? Yeah. So basically they've gone on, uh, they've gone on a bit of a recruitment drive. Ah, uh, okay. Around uh, all of. Well, that's, that was good for them. That was convenient, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Around, but that's why it's sort of, it, it's kind of not explained to you in the film, but that's why Gandalf says, I'll, I'll be rocking up on the on the fifth day or the fourth day or whatever it is, because he's got to go and catch up with, um, catch up with, bloody hell, Carl Urban, by the way. Yeah, that blew my mind. Another Kiwi. You've been watching the boys, haven't you, mate? Yeah, but I haven't seen the new. I haven't seen the new stuff that you recommended, and it completely threw me because obviously he's blonde in this and sort yeah. of quite. I just couldn't look further from the character that he plays in the boys. No, it sort of really, really threw me. Billy and the his, butcher. Yeah, and his accent in the boys is dreadful. Well, I kind of love him for that. <laughs> yeah, it's, but I didn't realize he's supposed to be British. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so I know. I know. It's absolutely wild. But Ioma, he's gone off to go on a recruitment drive drive and then uh gandalf's gone to get him to like right bring the lads we're, we're going in i have got a great ian mckellen fact for you as well go on. based off of last week was there anything about him calling anyone a cub or something again? <laughs> it's, it's it's not as good as that but it, he basically peter jackson went to his house and i think peter jackson's partner is called fran and I think she was responsible for it. She was lot, like very heavily involved in the casting. I could be wrong on that, but she was a big part of the filmmaking process as well. And they rocked up to Ian McKellen's house 
to be like, listen, Ian, we've got it, like the part for you, we want you to play the role of Gandalf. And he was like, oh, that's very, very kind of you, but I don't really want to do that. <laughs> and they're like, no, this is like massive. Like you're, you, you, you surely have got to take this on. It's like, I've always liked the idea of visiting New Zealand, but I'm not sure I want to go and live there for a year. And they're like, this will be enormous. And he was like, I have a small part in Mission Impossible 2. I might not be able to do it. <laughs> so he's looking for ways to get out of being in Lord of the Rings by saying, yeah, no, I might go do Mission Impossible 2. And the only reason why, the reason why he ended up then doing it is because I believe, I, th I think this is right, that Tom Cruise wouldn't commit to letting him have the script, the full script, because it was so secretive and all of this that he didn't really know what the part was going to be. And then I think Anthony Hopkins took the part instead in Mission Impossible 2 and uh, took the the part that Ian McKellen was going to play and, then, and he ended up going and doing Lord of the Rings. Um, and there was this lovely, I, I saw the other, what was brilliant, I saw the other side to um, the Orlando Bloom, Ian McKellen loving. I saw an interview of Orlando Bloom saying that Ian McKellen was not a morning person at all. He just would not be in a good mood in the morning. And if you tried to even talk to him, he would just shut you down. Um, and it was quite nice seeing Orlando Bloom saying like, so yeah, I just just try and piss him off. Really, <laughs> just yeah. try and go wind him up in the morning, and he would. And he said, "I, I really appreciate the fact that he would just kill me off because he was like the he was like the, the the one that had out of everyone. I mean, you look at it now. If you look at the cast now, it's it's basically like a who's who of pretty much the biggest bosses, obviously predominantly men over the course of the last." 20 years every single one of them you're looking at think jesus they've smashed it in one way or another they've done exquisite unbelievable stuff yeah um and orlando bloom would have been the sort of box fresh one on set and ian mckellen at that time would have been the dad you know he would have been the daddy he would have been like the i'm the most established out of all of us um so Orlando Bloom is sort of like fresh out of the box. And I was thinking about it today, actually. Orlando Bloom, actually, he was kind of, you know, we're talking about Paul Mescal. Orlando Bloom at that time, do you remember? He was the guy off the back of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. He sort of, he then went on the Pirates of the Caribbean straight after. He was in a real sweet spot. Um so yeah, no, I thought that was I thought that was brilliant that he sort of said like I knew he wasn't a morning person, so I went to just go and wind him up anyway, and then he would swiftly put me in my place. So they had like this mutual agreement that Ian McKellen would just bash him down to size when he needed to. And I think <laughs> another another thing, Ian McKellen actually, because he had done this, he missed out on the Mission Impossible thing, so he didn't then feature any more of that. He ended up then getting X Men off the back of this as well. Which is kind of mad. That's funny. I, I I would have kind of had them around the same time. Like I would have thought it was concurrent, you know. But that, that is interesting because they were all f being filmed. They were literally all three films happened at the same time, which then allowed him to do the X Men stuff, which is absolutely incredible. Um, one did I say about the fact they had the reshoots? Did I tell you that? No. Well, it just one final little thing. Um. They, there was, after they'd finished 
everything. They'd finished all the filming. Everyone had gone their separate ways. They basically realised that then there was a load of reshoots that they needed to do for the post-production process. And I just thought there was a little something in here that you you really jogged my mind earlier on when you were talking about the idea of when times are good, actually, instead of letting bad things kind of grow in the darkness, utilising the good times to be really, really kind of like aware of how good you've got it. Um, and I thought it was really fascinating that all of them said that when they were asked to come back for the reshoots, they had had such an amazing time that they felt like they'd been given this kind of like second sort of life, second go at doing it all over again. And everyone, cast and crew, that was on the, the first lot of shoots all came back for this kind of two, three month period to do the pickups. Um, and I just thought that's such a good lesson lesson for life. You know, when when the times are good, you don't know when you're going to get another opportunity. You don't know when things are going to end or you don't know when things are going to kind of maybe differ in a way that mean you can't get it back. So when you do get those moments, such a blessing, that's yeah. such, a, such a treat. And amazing that they had it, you know, everyone descending on music. I think it was Wellington that they were in was the city. So they all went back and they just had the best time. That's um, cool. And that's, I think, again, I think that comes across. You can really see that they, like, these are people that just, they they call them, like, players, don't they? Sort of when you, you talk about people on stage, you're like, oh, the players, like, they, yeah. you can see that these are people that are in their element and loving, absolutely loving this kind of experience and getting to do this. And the film is just, it's immaculate for it. Just, ugh, amazing. What, what an incredible film. Um, have we missed anything? I don't think so, mate. I don't think so. Okay. Well, here's the, do you want to do Fine One and War Crime or MVP first? Um, let's do Fine One and War Crime because I, I don't really, you know, I can't really think of much. The the only things that I, I had a little bit of this, and I feel like I'm negging. Uh-oh. <sighs> Gollum's aged a little bit. Gollum's aged a little bit, but Andy Serkis is just so good that I think... I, I know what you're saying, pass. but it's over 20 years old and it's still better CG. I, honestly, I, I challenge you to look at a it's lot of movies that are CGI heavy, even in 2023, 2024, they don't look as good as Gollum still. Yeah, that that is very true. I, I think it's more just an issue with CGI in general, you know? Yeah, and also because all the rest of it looks immaculate, you know? I mean, there's this, there's this one... Sorry, I'll give you another boring story. There's this one thing they had to do a... They had to do a scene where Gollum is... Gollum is fishing in this little pool and um, they arranged to do the shoot and it just so happened on the morning of the shoot they had a downpouring of snow. Wow. So he needs to get into this water and pull out a pretend fish. And they wake up at 7am. It was supposed to be like a nice sunny day and it's hammered it down with snow overnight and it's freezing conditions. And Peter Jackson says to the crew, listen, we haven't got any more time, so we're shooting this today. 
Like we have to shoot this sequence today, otherwise we don't get it. And they spent from 7 a.m. in the morning through until 1 p.m. defrosting this entire section of lake just on their own. Just they brought in heaters, these huge fans, people with shovels and spades basically trying to make trying to defrost a lake on their own and they manage it. And they manage to spend six hours trying to do everything in their power to make it look like the middle of spring and not the height of winter. And they manage to do it. And I think that kind of just shows you the the level of commitment that they go to. Yeah. Um, but the reason why they went with CGI for Gollum was because in terms of the description of him, he was they didn't feel that they could get a human to be him because he was supposed to be so skeletal or skeletal and and frail and 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 sort of dehumanized by the experience of having the ring they were like we can't do it with a person who just won't look right mm. and i think that is accurate you know yeah. if it had a human it wouldn't have it wouldn't have really worked so i'm kind of undoing my own argument there um and the other the other thing just on the 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 fine wine or, or war crime um, so actually in the fine wine section, I will say how uncompromising it is and what an incredible feat it is. In the war crime section, there was just one little thing that I found really fascinating. And I mean, it kind of is not so much of an argument now about the film, but at the time there was this really interesting discussion around people trying to use Lord of the Rings as a pro-war film. Um, and and basically making the claim that it was a kind of pro-American war film and that it was not glamorizing, but actively reinforcing this idea that the good guys were the Americans, that the good guys in the films represented America. Um, and, and Viggo Mortensen made a really kind of impassioned or had a really impassioned stance against this idea that the the film was pro-war. He was very, very keen to point out the film was not pro-war. It was basically pro-getting together with other people to try and stop terrible evil taking over the world is a good thing. That is not saying that the good guys are America, or that is not saying like, let's all go to war and that will kind of fix everything. Uh, but he gives he, he gave an incredible interview where he sort of spoke about it at length, and I was so impressed by the fact that it just really struck me where that as an American actor, I believe he's American, it, it, it was that he had the strength and the conviction in his own beliefs that he was prepared to take on. That this was at a time when America was in Iraq and was quite heavily bombing Iraq, that he was prepared to sit there and and basically question and criticise the US government and their actions in, in, in Iraq, which was just so, um, so brave. He does seem like, just from everything that I've seen of him, he does seem like an incredibly deep thinker and a really sort of quite impressive human being, aside from also being the coolest version of Aragorn that you could ever possibly have wished to have found. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting thing as well. Yeah. Other than that, I haven't really seen too much. I mean, the criticisms that we had 
spoken about that exist last week from the Fellowship of the Ring are the same criticisms that kind of surfaced when I did my research on this otherwise. Um, I didn't see too much else unless you did. No, no. Okay, who's winning for you on the MVP front? Oh, it's a tough one, isn't it, man? I know mine. Go on, can you hit me up with yours? Like, I feel like it has to go to John Rhys-Davis for doing Gimli and Treebeard. And I think I'm going to make Left a little field. bit of the... Left field. I, I think Gimli is one of the most massively underrated characters within the trilogy. I think he's incredible. He is brilliant. And I, I, I love his dynamic with Legolas. I think if you actually look at John Rhys-Davis, if you look at the kind of like his build, his face. I love the fact that he was cast in Lord of the Rings, you know? Yeah. In a, in a, in a world of people that look like Carl Urban and Orlando Bloom and Elijah Wood and Viggo Mortensen and Liv Tyler, I love the fact that there is still room for a dwarf and an axe to tear shit up and then he's also the voice of probably the best character in the film, Treebeard, as well. Yeah. That's a good shout, mate. I do like that. I do like that. Did um, we give it to Legolas last week? Did we give it to Orlando Bloom last week for a fellowship? I don't think we actually, yeah, I think we sort of said we liked it, but I don't think we did a proper MVP last week. Okay. Um, who, do you, who do you want to go for for you this week? Ooh. I feel yeah, like I'll give it to Sean Aston, mate. Yeah, Sam Ways. Yeah, I know. He, he's just, he tugs your heartstrings, isn't Sam he? Sam Ganji gets me every time, mate. That, do you know what it is, mate? I think you're a bit of a Sam Ganji. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's possibly, I think there's a, there's a little bit. I'm thick, of, mate. Is that what it is? <laughs> <laughs> I think that just like, you're somebody who can do the, you can do like everything's falling apart around us. The amount of times you did that for me, everything's falling apart around us. Come on, let's let's go and get you some corn sausages and some M S ready food, and everything will be all right. It's, it's, it was you just think about the the long drive back from Yeovil, mate, at about two in the morning, and I was like, I know I'll make this drive back to London a lot better. Slap on BG's BG's greatest <laughs> hits, BG's greatest hits, yeah. and let's go and get Ben twenty chicken nuggets. Yeah, and then now we got we got. Good. Purdy and Leah and everyone asleep in the back thinking, God, look what these old granddads going up to. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, man. Yeah. Absolutely classic. Look, we've, we've yammered on for a long time, so <laughs> I don't know if we've got time for I'm D-ball on this episode, but we will we'll erupt back with a bang. Um, bring the music down, Purds. I am going to be very boring and predictable. Let's just do it. Let's just do it. We're here. We've come this far. I want to see what happens. <laughs> I was so <laughs> I've been so, I've actually been like almost a bit anxious this week going into it being like, I'm kind of worried he's just going to be like, no, nah, I'm, I'm, I can't. I'm sorry, mate. We, I don't think we can do this three weeks in a row. I'm going to go for Shawshank or something. <laughs> no, I was no, like, no. We, so, we will be doing, yeah. <laughs> we doing the return of the king. We will be doing the return of the king. A hundred percent. And do you know what's really nice then? I feel like we've done, we've actually, for the first time ever, we've taken on one of the trilogies and really given it the full, yeah. full beans, which I'm really delighted about. I think that's kind of like... What a way to start the year. Yeah, we did a little Lord of the Rings season without even realising we were exactly. going to do it, which is lovely. This wasn't like. pre-planned either. But Not at all. 
it's just been too much fun. I'm ready to go again. And this, I've got to say one thing, mate. One thing I did leave out from from this, but is fine to talk about now, is the last section of this film, right? The last little bit when you've had Smeagol disappear off, and you're still wondering all throughout the film: is he bad? Is he good? Is he bad? Is he good? And then when he's basically said, "We're going to kill him." We're going to yeah. kill them both. We're going to get wow. the pressures back after all this good stuff's happened. And then that, that song, the da, 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 drops in and you just get that shot of Sauron's tower and Mount Doom, that fiery backdrop with all those like dragony things flying about the ring race. And you're just like, I am so ready for the third one. I remember, I remember watching this in the cinema thinking as if I have to wait a year, yeah, as if yeah. I have to wait another year to see what happens here, to watch the, like, it just, it, I think out of pretty much any type of film episodic like this, I think this, the ending of this, the way it's all being built up, that you are just the most pumped for the final one. And I'm very glad we're doing it. But you also, at the same time, you feel nourished enough by this film that you don't feel shortchanged. No. Nah. You don't feel like, oh, they just left it on a cliffhanger. It's kind of like, no, this is just just set it neatly, ready to go for a... Uh, Back to the day. scene of, of Mount Doom. To, you oh. see the dollar! <laughs> you see the... Cast it into the flame! Oh, can't wait. Can't wait. Right, keep it locked. Be where be pod on the social channels and get ready to do some more Lord of the Rings Return of the King next week. Bye-bye-bye. <laughs>